0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we like to begin with the Angelus every week. So, Bishop, would you
1: mind leading us? No problem. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, women, and and blessed blessed is the fruit of thy womb, womb, Jesus. Jesus, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, death. amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may, by his passion and cross, be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same christ our lord amen Amen. in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen welcome to truth in charity with bishop rhodes brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union on this episode bishop kevin rhodes bishop of fort wayne south bend talks about the upcoming feast of saint mary magdalene and the important role women play in the church He'll also discuss who should and should not have public leadership roles during Mass. Then it's on to listener-submitted questions. Bishop will explain why he changes hats when celebrating Mass and whether or not Catholics should hold hands during the Our Father. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com or call 260-436-9598.
0: Welcome to our second episode of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes, Bishop for the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. Thanks for being with us again today. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be with you. One of the things coming up, looking at the liturgical calendar, uh, Saturday we celebrate the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene. What do we know about St. Mary
1: Magdalene? Well, we know, first of all, that she was the first witness of the resurrection. I think that's the number one thing. We do know that she was one of the women who was a disciple of Jesus. She followed him. She was there at the foot of the cross with our Blessed Mother. But she was the privileged witness, the first one to see the risen Lord. As a matter of fact, our Lord, if you remember in that appearance to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection, had her go back and tell the apostles that he was alive. So that's why... I forget who called her this, but it's a traditional title of Mary Magdalene, the Apostle to the Apostles. Yeah. You know, she's the one who was sent by Jesus to tell the apostles that uh, Jesus had risen from the
0: dead. Was that just a coincidence that she happened to be there at that time, or do you think that was how it was supposed to be.
1: I think it was how it was supposed to be. I don't know that anything would be coincidence <laughs> in in God's plan. I, there is some speculation about our Lord's appearance to the, our Blessed Mother, too, though we have no record of that in Scripture. It's been a firm belief that Jesus, and I think St. John Paul II reflected on this, that Jesus perhaps appeared to his own mother, first mm-hmm. but again we don't have that in scripture so it's just speculation but i think mary magdalene i mean beautiful we don't know a lot about her life we know she's mary of magdala she came from the town of magdala which is in, in galilee there was a time where there was some identification of her with a woman caught in adultery or other marys in mm-hmm. the gospel mary of bethany for example some confusion so one has to be a little bit careful we don't know a whole lot. She's the one from whom seven, seven demons were cast. I think that's what the Gospels say. So we know that, there was, that she was a sinner who experienced the mercy of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that
0: idea of her being the one caught in adultery, if I remember right, the story of the woman caught in adultery ends, and then immediately thereafter we're introduced to Mary Magdalene. And so some people tie them together to be the same person, some people say not necessarily is it really important either way
1: no i don't think so (laughs) i mean she's a great saint as a matter of fact i i think what i find most moving is is i think of her fidelity to christ at the foot of the cross Mm -hmm. so it, it seems the fact that that jesus appearing to her after the resurrection you know is really appropriate And it's interesting that Pope Francis, because of Mary Magdalene's importance, I don't remember if it was last year or year before, made the uh, memorial of St. Mary Magdalene a feast. Yeah. You know, and for those listeners who aren't familiar, we have different days in the liturgical year that have different ranks. The highest rank is a solemnity. Mm -hmm. So you think of every Sunday as a solemnity. Christmas is a solemnity the assumption of Mary into heaven is a solemnity. Yeah. Those are like the highest, the, the most important feasts of the church. After solemnity, number two in importance are feasts, uh-huh. like the Feast of the Transfiguration, or the, the days in which we honor the apostles, they're all feasts, like the Feast of St. John, or mm-hmm. the Feast of St. James, the Feast of St. Peter and Paul. And then the next level down is a memorial. And that's when we remember a saint. So typically, you know, you have the memorial of Saint John Vianney, or, you know, you have the memorial of Saint Polycarp, or whoever. Well, Saint Mary Magdalene was always honored with a memorial memorial until, you know, recently when Pope Francis raised it to a feast. So when it's a feast, for example, you pray the Gloria. Uh. You don't Pray the Gloria at Mass on a regular memorial. Uh-huh. But at a feast, you do. So yeah. there's this hierarchy of liturgical days. For those who are interested in learning yeah. more about the liturgical days, it's very interesting. Some memorials of saints are obligatory and some are optional. So mm-hmm. it's up to the priest who's celebrating the Mass if he wants to or not. He can just do the regular Mass of the day or he could do the optional memorial. But then there are other memorials that are obligatory that you can't skip.
0: And that's in celebrating it at the Mass, not necessarily obligatory attendance from the average Catholic.
1: No, no. It's not a holy day of obligation, no. But it's a – on that day, the priest is obligated to remember that saint, to do the prayers for that saint. Well, she's such an
0: important role in the Bible, in our Christian faith, yet she wasn't one of the 12. Like you said, she was the apostle to the apostles, and in some ways – more important than some of the other apostles, that's used as one of the explanations of why we don't have women priests, not the only reason, but what do you think that tells us about historically what Jesus had in mind for the priesthood?
1: You know, it's a good good question. You know, one of the things is, and I think it's important to realize that Jesus had women disciples, mm-hmm. like Mary Magdalene, there were others as well. So they were really important in the life of the church. They accompanied Jesus and they had an important role. So it shows the importance of the role of women in the church. And of course, the greatest woman who ever lived was the Blessed Virgin Mary. And she was the perfect disciple of the Lord and has the greatest mission, greater than the apostles. She's the queen of apostles. That's one of her titles. Yeah. But yet neither the Blessed Virgin Mary nor Mary Magdalene were priests. Only men were chosen for the priesthood. And it doesn't mean that women are less important. They're not. I mean, who's more important in the life of the church than the Blessed Virgin Mary? Right. And then you have the great important figures like Mary Magdalene. We can look at women throughout the history of the church everyone from Mother Teresa in ye- recent years to great saints of the past like Catherine of Siena or Teresa of Avila. So there's a complementarity of roles that um, obviously the priesthood, the ordained priesthood is an important and ministry and mission in the church, no doubt. But there's a fundamental equality by our baptism. Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of the roles that women play in our church
1: today? Just so many different roles. I mean, we have many women uh, serving in various capacities in our parishes, in the diocese, including leadership positions. Mm-hmm. We have school principals and teachers. We have diocesan officials who are women, who are heads of secretariats, Catholic charities, communications, evangelization, etc. I think most Catholics can say in their parishes a lot of times it's women who are. In uh, positions where they're not only workers but also leaders. So I think there's um, there's a diversity for sure. At the same time, you know we have to recognize that uh, with the priesthood being reserved to men, that should never never be seen as any kind of um, looking upon women as inferior in any way. And I think that's, you know one of those misconceptions in our culture.
0: I know one of the workshops at the convocation down in Orlando here a couple weeks ago now was on the feminine genius and talking about how we can make sure that there is a place in our parishes, our dioceses, and I think for women as leaders and to be promoting that because we need that feminine genius and the complementarianism of the male and the female both and that input from both sides.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, and um, it's an interesting some will also speak in the life of the church as a whole the Marian dimension of the church um we speak of the petrine or that of saint peter which is the authority in teaching etc but then you have the Marian element in the church which is actually comes even before the petrine i think that's very beautiful and one can see the the feminine genius as you speak of it as essential for the church's mission and the church's life. I don't want to though restrict and I think this goes for men and women um, to you know actual ministry because every woman and every man you know has a mission in their life circumstance in the home mm-hmm. at work in the community. So we shouldn't have the idea that those are really serving or only those who are let's say employees of the church. Mm-hmm. I think about the woman, the, the wife and mother, and her vocation. I mean, who has a greater impact on the growth of a child in the faith than, than the mother and the father in the home? Yeah. So I want to just mention that because sometimes people think that they're really only serving the church if they're working for the church. Hmm. No. I mean, I think of my mother— or my grandmother. I mean, no one had greater impact on my life, my faith, my learning to pray, and really my vocation as a priest, than the faith and love of my mother and grandmother. My father wasn't Catholic. My mother was and my grandmother, and they're both so devout that I really learned from them uh, so much. Their witness and their words. They taught me about Christ. They taught me how to pray. How many of our listeners can relate to that? Sure, sure, definitely. I, I know I
0: can. Well, coming up, we're going to be talking about some different ways that uh, people can be prepared to be leaders in the church and, and maybe some things to keep in mind as we prepare for leadership. And we'll talk about that as well as questions submitted by listeners here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes on Redeemer Radio. This is Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop, here to talk about some of the questions that you have. Before we get into some of those, one of the things that's kind of come up here and there is the idea of leadership roles at Mass. Of Obviously, we have our priests and deacons, uh, but then some of the other roles like a cantor, lector, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, um, and then even ushers and money counters. It kind of, there's this whole range of different people that are involved with the mass. And what should somebody keep in mind for who could and could not fulfill some of those positions? Uh, I know sometimes we'll have like a a non-Catholic playing piano, for example, or something like that. Is there any defined rules on where we need practicing Catholics in these
1: leadership roles? It depends on what the ministry is, but Definitely, any Catholic in good standing can carry out a a liturgical ministry. I'm thinking especially of something like uh, a elector, mm-hmm. extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, or a cantor at mass that that's a very public role in mm-hmm. the liturgical assembly. So a general rule of thumb, and this is really the church's norm, is that if if someone's not able to receive Holy Communion because of their particular personal situation, if a person's not allowed to receive Holy Communion, then they really shouldn't act in any public role in the liturgy. They shouldn't be a lector or an extraordinary minister or a cantor. Now, if someone's in that situation, the priest or a deacon or whoever, I mean, our role is to try to help them to regularize their situation in the church to remove that impediment so that they are able to receive holy communion if their situation can be changed etc those people need to be accompanied in their faith you know it just could cause some scandal if if someone wasn't or as one of the church documents says no one should be selected whose designation could cause consternation for the faithful so You know, a person who's going to give assistance at liturgy should be also well-instructed about the ministry that they're going to do. But their life, their morals, their fidelity to the church's teaching uh, are important. That
0: idea of being in good standing with the church, can you explain what might make somebody uh, in a position where they should not receive communion?
1: Well, someone who's, um, for example, cohabitating outside marriage, someone who's in an invalid marriage, you know, someone who is publicly dissenting from church teaching in Mm -hmm. a particular area. Those would be... Something like uh, somebody who's actively rallying for pro-choice things or something like that. Exactly, yeah. Those would be kinds of things. Those are things that would cause consternation, cause scandal. And then some of those
0: is as simple as going to confession... Right. Some of those require a
1: significant lifestyle change or... Conversion. Yeah, conversion. Yeah. Now, having said that, we're all sinners. Mm -hmm. I mean, got to say. But I think the the thing that's most problematic in the situations we're talking about is that it's something that's public, something that's well-known. But... You know, we all need the grace of conversion, ongoing conversion. We need to go to confession regularly. But if one is in a situation where they're not able to or not willing to change, then they're not also able to receive absolution because you have to have that purpose of amendment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's what makes the difference. So would there be something different
0: between somebody who is – Uh, struggling with alcoholism or an addiction to pornography uh, versus somebody who has a a hardline stance
1: on something contrary to church teaching. Right. Yeah, I mean, take pornography as an example. That's a good example. You can have someone who's struggling with it, fighting it, but falls And realizes that it's wrong. And goes to confession and, mm -hmm. and all that. They can continue to have a public role. But if you're someone who owns a pornography shop Mm. You know, and you're going to continue to do that. Yeah. Then no, you can't. So, I think that's maybe a one simple example.
0: Would it be different for a role like an usher or something like that, where um, maybe you could still serve in that capacity, or should you still just be a participant in the pew?
1: I think there you get into gray area, um, depending on the, like I said, the kind of ministry you have. I wouldn't be as strict when it comes to maybe someone who's a greeter or someone who's doing some other things like that or certainly counting the collection whatever not to say those aren't important things but that's not like public you know where you're actually distributing holy communion for example mm-hmm. or serving at the mass or reading the word of god at mass so some of it is has to be a pastoral judgment you have to look at the person And the sin that you're talking about. I mean, for example, if you have an abortionist, I don't think an abortionist should be taking up the collection. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not only should the abortionist not be reading at mass, shouldn't really, because that would cause consternation, Hmm. naturally.
0: Is this something that... We just need to be responsible for ourselves and accountable to ourselves, or if we see somebody else that might be publicly doing one thing and then distributing communion the next day, is it something that we should speak out against or talk to the person individually or approach our priest
1: I think if it's i mean I think we shouldn't be looking for it I mean I don't think that's i mean I don't think we should be pharisaical, yeah, um, making guesses, oh, I think this person is doing this and why are they do- you know i think no we should give people the benefit of the doubt however if one is certain and um is really disturbed and thinks that that this is causing scandal one could approach the person and one could approach their parish priest and express their concern all right well when we come back
0: we are going to be taking questions that you have submitted as listeners you can always do that at RedeemerRadio.com. Slash Ask Bishop. We've been getting a lot of different questions on various things, of uh, theological or just uh, getting to know our bishop a little bit better. So we'll talk about those here on Truth and Charity on Redeemer Radio. This is Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes from the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend. Here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, and it is time to answer listener-submitted questions. You can always do that at RedeemerRadio.com/slash Ask Bishop. You can be anonymous, like several of our questions today, or you can share your name with us, and we'll be happy to pass that along. Our first question is an anonymous one. Why do people hold hands with the person next to them when we say the Our Father, or hold their hands up, or palms up? Then they raise their hands higher when we say, for the kingdom, the power, the glory, etc. It looks like they're imitating the priest. I'm confused because I have not received the sacrament of holy orders, so why do we do this hand motion?
1: Wow, we're getting a lot of liturgical questions today, Kyle. Yeah. You know, first of all, that whole idea of holding hands during the Our Father and the prayer that follows, that the priest says, and then raising them, that's not in the rubric. So Mm -hmm. that's just kind of a custom. I I think it's more common in the United States. I don't know what other – and it's something that's not prohibited, but it's not even mentioned in the Missal. Okay. So, you know, some would say, well, we really shouldn't be doing it since it doesn't say it in the Missal. But – we don't regulate everything, right? You know what I mean. Like, if people choose that they want to hold hands with the people next to them during the Our Father, I think they could have the freedom to do that. But it, it shouldn't definitely shouldn't be something that's required because the church doesn't. It's not in the liturg- liturgical books. It's not part of the liturgy. Okay. I think the position of raising your hands in prayer, the, what they call in Latin the orans position, which is the, the position that the priest has when he's saying prayers. And that's with your hands out and, and hands, palms up? Exactly. Uh-huh. That's. Um, I mean, that's not a, a position that's prohibited of the laity. I mean, that's an ancient Christian posture for prayer. I think it's a bit odd to, for a lay person at Mass to do that, because it does seem to be mimicking that of the priest. but. You know, if you go to a charismatic meeting, for example, charismatic Uh prayer, they'll often use that position, and that's fine. It's a traditional Christian posture of prayer that goes back to the early church. But it's basically at mass, it's basically the position that the priest has. But again, we don't regulate anything. If someone in their pew decides that they're going to raise their hands like that at the Our Father or something, there's no explicit prohibition of that. Another question, why does Bishop change hats when he celebrates Mass? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the bishop has two hats. Uh-huh. One is the zucchetto, that's the little skull cap, uh, purple in color, uh, right on the top of the head. But it, and the bishop can wear that also outside of Mass, especially if he's in his cassock, etc. He wears the zucchetto, it's uh-huh. called. Um, but I think they're referring to the mitre. That's the large pointed hat with the two flaps down the back. The miter, and sometimes, you know, I go around to our schools, children will always ask that question. Yeah. And then I get asked them to think about it. I said, Uh think about when I took it off and when I put it on. Can you remember when I would put it on? Do they remember? Oh, yeah. Oftentimes they do. So I wonder how many of our listeners, (laughs) if they think about that or next time, maybe I shouldn't answer the question and then have you come and try to figure out (laughs) Basically, the rule of thumb is this. Anytime I'm speaking to God, it comes off. The mitre is removed when I'm praying. Speaking to God. When I'm speaking to God, okay. the mitre comes off. Uh-huh. When I'm speaking to the people, it's on, like when I'm preaching. Uh-huh. Also, when I'm listening to the readings, it's on. Hmm. But notice it's off when I listen to the gospel. So that's kind of because the gospel is special. We stand, for example, during the gospel. But basically, you'll notice all during the Eucharistic prayer, the liturgy of the Eucharist, it's off. As soon as I go to the altar, it's off. Okay? But when I'm giving a blessing, it's on. I'm giving a blessing to the people. When I'm preaching, it's on. When I'm walking in the procession Mm -hmm. or in the recessional, it's on. So that's basically it. Yeah. How many do you have? Oh my goodness. I, I've gotten so many mostly as gifts. I probably have about a dozen. Of each? Well, no, they oh, And of the miter? Of miters. I think there's most of them are white, um, but there are some of different colors. I prefer white miters, with. they could have some color in it, but that's the traditional thing is to have the miter be white. Some are more decorative than others. The important thing for me is that they fit. Uh-huh. Because when they're too tight, I get a headache, <laughs> and and then, and then I take it off, and there's this band around. You can see it yeah. that was pressing into some, my skin. Ha- miter head. Yeah, like miter head. head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and of course it can't be too big or it'll go down over my face. So, <laughs> yes. so you got to get the right size. It's funny they have sizes, uh-huh. but I don't think it works <laughs> because sometimes I'll get the size and it's too tight. I rather I, so before buying one, I always like to try it on. Uh-huh. But anyhow, it's it's it took a while getting used to putting it on and off. But now I'm used to it. Do you know where that shape of the mitre and or the tradition of it comes from? Yeah, I mean I've heard a couple different explanations of that. Um, the one that sticks with me is kind of like the tongues of fire. Okay. coming down in the apostles at Pentecost. I've heard that. That makes sense. Pope Francis. I,
0: I think a lot of popes have done this tradition where if you buy a zacchetto for the pope and you give it to him he will put it on his head and if it fits him he'll give you his old one if it doesn't he just gives it <laughs> right back to you which either way you still have a zacchetto that the pope wore that's right have you ever had anybody present a no, zucchetto no to you
1: in in I, exchange for the one that you're I wearing i don't think so i don't but if anyone wants to do that my size is six there you go size right. six no, actually no. they're not cheap by no the way. <laughs> no no Do they sell them at the cathedral bookstore? No. I think you have to be in like, you have to get them online or something. Yeah. We
0: have another anonymous question. Why can't servers at a mass with Bishop
1: touch his mitre or crozier with their bare hands? So they don't get it dirty. Yeah, No, no, I'm just teasing. I think actually the origin of that, they wear those um, because it's the mitre and the crozier are episcopal insignia in other words they can only be used by the bishop mm-hmm. they can only be worn or used by the bishop oh okay so i think the the tradition is that if anyone else touches them or holds them during a liturgy not outside the liturgy but during a liturgy they don't touch it directly mm-hmm. they hold it with a cloth because they're not the bishop. They can't be using the bishop's insignia. And it's probably more
0: symbolic than it is any kind of actual.
1: Right. It's like, for example, maybe a little parallel, not exactly, but if you notice when we have benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of that. You know, the, um, the priest or the bishop or the deacon uses a humeral veil. You know, you might wonder, well, why is he not? touching the monstrance what's wrong with touching the monstrance he has to do it through this cloth um, so that's kind of a parallel looking through pictures it looks like you have more than one crozier that you use how many do you have Croziers? personally one that was gi- no i was given one when i first was ordained a bishop uh-huh. From Mount St. Mary's, because I had been oh. serving at Mount St. Mary's as the rector, and that was like a farewell gift. Was it a new one or something uh, that I like, can't down? A new one, okay. and that's the one I use most of the time. That's uh-huh. the one that I use for confirmations most of the time. The second one I have is one that was given to me by Notre Dame. When I had my first mass as bishop in the Basilica of the Sacred Heart at Notre Dame, uh-huh. they presented me with the crozier. That's the pastoral staff. And it's pretty heavy. It's beautiful, actually. And so I use that as well. Um, And it has, they had it custom made. So they have my coat of arms on one side of the crook Mm -hmm. and the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, who I have a lot of devotion to on the other side. Ah. And it's the image of Guadalupe that they have kind of a modern representation. It's in one of the chapels in the basilica. So that was a very special gift. So those are two that I... Uh, that, that I received as gifts. But I also, when I celebrate Mass in the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, I use the crozier that they have there, which was the crozier that belonged to, I believe, Archbishop Knoll. Oh, okay. So I use that at the Cathedral in Fort Wayne. And then at the Cathedral of St. Matthew in South Bend, they have a special crozier that actually the former pastor, Monsignor Heinz had made, Hmm. and it has the image of St. Matthew on the crook. So they keep that there. So when I have mass at St. Matthew's Cathedral, I use that crozier. There's another crozier that um, is on loan from Notre Dame to Bishop Dwenger High School. It was the crozier that was used by Bishop Joseph Dwenger, the second bishop of Fort Wayne. Oh, wow. And they have it on loan. So when I go to Dwenger, I will use the Bishop Dwenger crozier. And that is a representation of a
0: shepherd's staff. staff, yeah, representing that you are the shepherd of the diocese. Exactly. All right. Well, we have some more questions submitted by listeners. We will have those here coming up in just a moment. You can always submit your question at redeemerradio.com/slash/askbishop, and we'll be right back with more from Bishop Rhodes on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. This is Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes for Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We are back with more of listener-submitted questions. Our first one comes from Andrea Serrani from the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception.
1: She asks, what is your favorite liturgical season and why? I would probably say combine two of them, Advent and Christmas. Yeah. I know that the Easter season's more important, <laughs> but I think... For me, as far as prayer and my own spiritual life, I just love the Advent and Christmas season because it's just, I don't know, there's a quiet joy about Advent. There's um, just that joyful expectation of the coming of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the Christmas season itself, I think part of it is I'm able to spend some time with my family, obviously, but there's also... You know, just that wonder and awe at the mystery of the Incarnation, that God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. And then the, all the circumstances of the first Christmas seemed to touch my heart yeah. in a way that, and I think, um, just makes it so beautiful. And I love the liturgies of the time. There's uh, the prayers, the readings, the feasts in the Christmas season are really special, like St. Stephen on December 26th, and St. John the Apostle and Evangelist on the 27th. That was my confirmation name, uh-huh. and the Holy Innocence. I mean, there's great feasts. And then we celebrate Mary on January 1st, the Mother of God, the Epiphany, you know, the first two great American saints, St. Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton, St. John Newman in early January. So there's just something about those seasons that there's special joy. Um, but I'd say fundamentally, the mystery of the Incarnation that the incredible truth that uh, God, in his love, became one of us, mm. that he became flesh and dwelt among us. And the, the church's liturgies during that time express in, in our prayers and in our music that great mystery.
0: There was a follow-up to her question. She also asked, what are some of the special ways that you honor or celebrate that season? You mentioned spending time with family. Anything
1: else special that you do during the Advent or Christmas season? I mean, as bishop, it's still busy. I mean, you know, I don't get the Advent season. I don't really get any time off, so Uh to speak. Uh, I didn't mention, but there's also two other great Marian feasts in Advent, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on December 8th, and then the Feast of our Lady of Guadalupe on December 12th, and I always spend that with our Hispanic communities, and that's such a huge feast for our Latino brothers and sisters and just a lot of fun, too. I would say that there are certain customs, if that's what Andrea's asking about, of Advent and Christmas. Definitely prominent would be the customs associated with our Lady of Guadalupe during Advent. I, for years, have been participating in those customs in our Latino communities, the Mañanitas, getting up real early in the morning and singing the hymns to Our Lady. And and then, um, you know, it's always spirit of fiesta, so there's mass and there's the acting out of the apparition to Juan Diego. And and I was ordained a bishop on the feast of Juan Diego, uh-huh. December 9th, so that's also, I celebrate my Episcopal anniversary at that time. Of course, the food's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I love the Mexican food. Then, when it comes to Christmas, I mean, I just love all the traditions of Christmas. I love the music, and I remember as a family we would sing together. We would just all the things that that we do at Christmas time—the decorating, the trees, etc. As you move on to New Year's, too, that the octave of Christmas, those eight days. Nowadays, I get—I try to spend maybe three or four of those days with my family back home in Pennsylvania. But this year, they came out to Fort Wayne, which was great because I didn't have to make that 10-hour drive. But I, I love the idea that my family could come to the cathedral and to the other churches where I celebrated masses during the Christmas season, yeah. to have them here and experience this part of my life was, was really special. And I think a lot of people who are listening, you know, it, the family unity and togetherness at that time is very special. I also enjoy to be honest I shouldn't really this is kind of not real religious or spiritual but I do enjoy the football games college football yeah. so when we get closer to the new years and the bowl games and everything yeah. I get together with some of my buddies and we you know you know sometimes I can get away for two days or something and go to a game uh-huh. you know, especially if Notre Dame is playing uh, I try to get to a game so I get a little time off Have you been to a bowl game I've been to two really the, and I love both. Uh, I went to the national championship game where we lost so badly to Alabama. <laughs> but I had a great time except for the game itself. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Got to play tennis. I was down at the Orange Bowl. So it was in Florida. Then I went to the, um, what's it called? The Fiesta Bowl in Phoenix Uh a couple years ago. And we lost that game too. So maybe I shouldn't. But I got (laughs) together with some of my friends, buddies of mine, who I like to play sports with. And we get together. So to keep up some of those friendships that go back many years for me with some of my friends like that, it's just like, you know, just kind of being one of the guys. They go, obviously we have mass every day and all that, which is great. But then to be able to do some sports together, enjoy a game together, I don't get to do that very much, yeah. but when I do, it's, it's always uh, a lot of fun. You mentioned football and tennis. Do you have a favorite sport? Is it one of those two? Oh, yeah. Or? I mean, football and basketball are my two favorite. Tennis would be what I play the most, although, I, to be honest, I haven't really taken the time. Uh-huh. I used to play basketball, uh-huh. um, but I'm a little too out of shape. I would <laughs> love to get out in shape again and play basketball again. That was probably my favorite sport to play. And then tennis would have been second. Uh, Football, I enjoy playing too. Baseball, I never really enjoyed playing. I don't know why. I didn't either.
0: As soon as they took away the tee and started throwing the ball at me. (laughs) A moving
1: target? Are you serious? (laughs) Well, you know, when I would play baseball growing up, I only liked to bat. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't like to go in the field. Especially when you're young, you just sit there and try
0: not to play with the sand. (laughs) My, My kids are doing that right now. Yeah. We have another question Let's be honest, there are lots of lingo in the Catholic Church. What is a word or term that most people wouldn't be able to define? I'm sure you know all kinds of words that I would have no idea what they mean whenever you say them.
1: (laughs) Okay, Kyle, give me a definition of the word that we say all the time now in the Nicene Creed, consubstantial. That is a good one. Consubstantial with the Father. Because I remember when we
0: first... Change the translation because it used to be one in being with the Father. That's right.
1: And so now it's consubstantial. So we're talking about how God the Son is consubstantial with the Father. What does that mean? I, I wouldn't do it justice, I'm pretty sure. Well, let me give you the Greek word. Maybe okay. that'll help. <laughs> yes, that's what I was homo, lacking. Homo usios. So that's same. Of <laughs> um, that, the same the substance. Same substance or as you said, the same being, the same essence. Uh This is all philosophical terminology. In the early church when there were different heresies that were denying the divinity of Christ, for example, Mm -hmm. the church had to articulate its faith in, and of course we use philosophy, philosophical terms, in order to try to articulate the meaning of, of these important elements of our faith. So there were those who denied that Jesus, as Son of God, was equal to the Father. Or, you know, Arius and the Arians, that was a major heresy. They believed that Jesus was really created by God. So the church in its creeds developed these professions of faith which says, no, he's not created. The Son eternally existed, and he is not inferior. He is of one being, as we said, or the same essence, the same substance as the Father, mm-hmm. and we could say the same thing about the Holy Spirit. So, developing this terminology to express these truths of faith, but sometimes the language today is a little difficult. Like we don't usually go around using the word consubstantial, right? But we understand why it's important because you know it's part of the creed and we should understand it. We should know it. So that, that whole notion that when we say consubstantial with the Father, we're professing our belief that Jesus is more than a man, that he's not a creature, that he is the Son of God who became man, who took on our human flesh, but he is of the same essence as the Father. You know, St. Augustine, uh, for example, in speaking of the Trinity, he would use the idea of memory and understanding and the will hmm. so those are three aspects of the human person we have me- and of the human mind we have memory we have understanding and we have will now but we're one person right and that's not a perfect analogy for the father son and holy spirit in the three persons and one God, but I think it's probably a good analogy, though imperfect. Well, whenever you come up with a perfect
0: analogy for the Trinity, (laughs) we are going to have a hit show. Okay, I'll work on that.
1: (laughs) What is your educational background? Well, I have a few degrees. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from St. Charles Seminary, Philadelphia, a Bachelor in Sacred Theology from the Gregorian University in Rome. And also from the Gregorian, I have a licentiate degree in sacred theology and a licentiate degree in canon law. Does that make you a canon lawyer? Yeah. 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 I could practice canon law. You know, it comes in handy as a bishop sometimes. Sure. Uh, But the theology, I had five years of theology after college. So in other words, graduate work. Mm -hmm. Five years of graduate work in theology two years of graduate work in canon law i was really blessed because i i loved studying theology really yeah and i studied at the gregorian so it was in italian but then when i was asked to stu- by my bishop to study canon law that was a little challenging because it was taught in latin the professors actually taught the classes in latin huh. so i had to switch from the italian to the latin but it was a great experience i honestly loved studying but i have to admit seven years of graduate studies I was getting tired I was ready to you know finish which I did and and uh, went to a parish to work yeah
0: I I hear that a lot with seminarians that as much as they might enjoy the studying they really want to be a priest and not just perpetual student exactly all right well we have one last question for you and this also comes from anonymous is it
1: okay to get a tattoo Well, I don't have any, Mm -hmm. but the church doesn't have a teaching on this, to be honest. So, I've heard a lot of moral discussions about it, however. I mean, there's nothing in the catechism of the Catholic Church which says getting a tattoo is immoral Mm -hmm. or not. So, I think, obviously, there are a lot of things to consider. What's the intention in getting one? I think that's an important question, the cost. I think... The size <laughs> uh-huh. um, is it what's motivating it? Is there some vanity involved? Hmm. How is this going to draw attention to yourself, you know, especially if it's very prominent? I think these are all important questions to ask. Also, what is the content? Yeah. I mean, there are some tattoos that have or that are bad in what they communicate. Mm-hmm. A racist symbol or something that's off color were vulgar obviously those would be immoral but you know again the church doesn't have a a particular stand on this i think you'd have to consider okay what's the motivation what's the intention what is it going to communicate where is it going to be located on the body i think you should look at the expense too or the dangers that could be involved especially if it's not done in a clean way one Mm -hmm. should never intentionally put one's own health at risk so i hope that's helpful yeah yeah All right, well, thank you. If you have any questions that you'd
0: like to submit for Bishop Rhodes, you can do that at redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. Ask any question. You can either do so anonymously or by sharing your name, and we'll answer that later, next time maybe, on the Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Could you close us out
1: with an Episcopal Blessing, please? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Both now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this program.